Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, an in-depth look at the campus free speech crisis, institutionalized wokeness, and critical race theory. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. As we started last week, we are doing our Friday shows a little bit differently than we do the rest of the shows in the week. We are not focusing on news of the day, but taking big issues and in a lot of cases, timeless issues and really delving into them and hopefully trying to find some solutions to these problems that dog freedom-loving people in society. And today I want to look at campus free speech, but I want to look at a particular dimension of it, which is how it can be protected from a legal or political side, as well as how it's actually working or not working, such as the case may be on campuses. And just as a little bit of background here, when Doug Ford was elected as Ontario's premier in 2018, he put forward a motion or a, a directive to universities that they had to have a policy affirming a commitment to free speech based on the famous Chicago principles. People like me were very happy about that. I thought this is exactly what we need. There was a, a bit of carrot and a bit of stick with the threat that if universities didn't live up to these things, they could have their provincial funding taken away. But three years later, has it done anything? I want to delve into this with three professors who have been instrumental in leading, I think, very important discussions on these issues. Queen's University law professor Bruce Party, Laurier University finance professor William McNally, and also from Laurier University, a professor in sociology of religion and digital media and journalism, David Haskell. Gentlemen, great to have you on the show. Thanks very much for coming today. Thanks, Andrew. Now, I want to start with you on this, David, because you gave a great talk last week at a conference, the uh, Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, of which I'm a member, and you talked about how in 2018, you and Will, who we'll get to in a moment, were very optimistic about this. Explain what you were feeling when this was announced in Ontario a few years ago. Okay, so this is just running up to the election. The, the uh Conservatives, progressive conservatives in Ontario had not yet achieved their majority government, um, but they had campaigned on this idea that they were going to put forth uh, free expression legislation that would guarantee free expression in universities. And uh, Will and I, coming from Laurier, we, we had a history of censorship. Like we, we are at one of the most woke universities, at least, you know, we're, we're in the top three, I would say. And we, we were excited because we thought, well, here we have a champion, uh, someone who is really said to be a bull in a china shop, right? And we thought that there was somebody, if we had somebody like that coming along who was willing to break a few teacups, that would be great. So we were very excited on the night of the election when the Conservatives won because we thought things were going to change. But as we would see, there, there was a lot of bull, but... It wasn't the kind we needed. And we'll get to what ended up coming of this shortly. I, I want to turn to you, William, because you were similarly optimistic about this. You, at Laurier, you've just gone through the, the Lindsay Shepard affair, and, and you've seen how a lot of your colleagues don't value free speech. Why did you think this was going to be either the silver bullet or at the very least a, a positive step towards rectifying some of these issues? 
Well, after the Lindsay Shepard affair broke, uh, David and I uh, started a petition to get the university to adopt the Chicago principles of free speech. And uh, the university declined. They struck their own committee. Uh, David was on that, and uh, it, it's a dog's breakfast of a document. It, it, it's, a, it, it's the outcome of a fight between David and about 11 other woke anti-free speech uh, academics, and it reads that way. And we thought that the, the provincial policy might, might give us a chance to fortify that policy and, and push it, and, and it uh, but that hasn't happened at all. Let's turn to you, Bruce, because you were not convinced in 2018 that this was going to be the transcendent or aspirational thing that a lot of people on the right uh, thought it would be, were you? Well, when I first heard about it, actually, I thought it was going to be good as well. But when you have a look at it, there's there's not as much in it as it sounds. It's it's the right idea, but it's entirely the wrong approach. It's it's just a directive. It's not a statute. It's not really the law in the proper sense. Uh, there's really no carrot and no stick. It can't really be enforced, and certainly not directly by professors or students. If your free speech is offended on campus, you can't go somewhere like to a court or some other tribunal to enforce the policy. It's really bureaucratic. Uh, and, and as such, it reflects a nice idea, but it's, it's, it's really ineffective. And to be fair, a lot of schools already had free expression policies. The, the issue wasn't the absence of the policies. It was the absence of an attitude that really uh, gave any credence or credibility and practice to those policies, it seems. Well, when you, when you, one of the problems with the directive is that it asks universities to draft their own free speech policies. That's asking for trouble because if they were inclined to do that in the way the directive imagines, they would have done so already. As you say, universities have policies coming out the yin-yang, including on free speech, but, but they, they don't carve out free speech or academic freedom as the first and most important priority. And actually, I want to circle back to Bruce's last point about what's the stick here and tell you guys a little story. Uh, so the stick is if, if um, you feel your speech rights are violated, you complain to, well, first to uh, internally. And if you don't get satisfaction internally, you go to the Ombudsman of Ontario. Well, Laurier has a security fee policy that we believe is an extraordinary infraction of our speech rights. We complained internally. Uh, and uh, that complaint was rejected. We took it to the ombudsman and we went through a two year process that uh, resulted in nothing. And, and um, I just wanna read you a sentence from the decision because it's very telling. Uh, they said, uh, they basically reminded us of their duty. They said, the ombudsman does not normally investigate broader public policy decisions, rather. The ombudsman can address complaints about administrative issues. So what the ombudsman did is they looked at whether Laurier followed its uh, security fee policy and they found it had followed its policy absolutely perfectly. Even though you uh, were challenging the policy itself. That was what we were attempting to do. And they said they didn't feel comfortable wading into the uh, moral and fairness issue of the policy and, and weren't prepared to render a decision about it, even though that was the thing we were appealing. So it was completely useless. 
See, but that, that is also a, a big part of the problem here is the way schools tend to frame their approaches. Very rarely will a school say, well, I shouldn't say very rarely, but, but generally speaking, a school is not saying you do not have the right to speak. They, they are putting up other barriers and roadblocks that prevent a speech from taking place, such as not clamping down on people trying to disrupt the speech, such as imposing thousands and thousands of dollars in security fees. And, and in a lot of ways, this kind of muddles it because the school tries to claim this sort of a, a moral high ground by saying, no, we, we just want to protect safety and, and we just want to do all of this. And I know you specialize in, in language, David. You must see a, a pretty big picture problem here in that they aren't even being honest about what they're doing. Well, that's very true. And it, it's not just, a, I want to get to the language issue, Andrew, but, but here's something that a lot of people outside of academia don't realize, that, that much of the time, when uh, let's talk about bringing a speaker on campus who, who holds conservative or libertarian values. Well, uh, a speaker like that will not be allowed to speak. Most often they won't be allowed to speak. There'll be a mob that will come out and, and they'll scream. They'll pull a fire alarm. That's what we saw at Laurier. Um, they'll, they'll force um, the security fee up by saying we're going to do violence. They'll, they'll do things like that. The, the, the missing ingredient, what many people don't realize, is that these protesters are most often funded by the university. Like they're organized by uh, people within various organizations under the umbrella of diversity and equity. So you have these smaller campus groups that are dedicated to what are called marginalized or, or um, students uh, who are vulnerable. So they're, 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 they have staff and that staff is paid. Well, then that staff will use their time. They're paid by the university, but they'll use their time to organize these rallies. So in fact, the university has money that's going to these protesters in forms of organization. And then if you're a conservative or a libertarian wanting to bring people in, you have to pay out of your own pocket. You know, it's the only free speech that costs thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on campus. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, just very briefly, if you want to pursue this, the idea of language uh, certainly plays into this. In any of these free speech policies that are created, they always have weasel words. And actually, Bruce was the one who identified this long before uh, even the, the, the uh, Ford government had come out with what it was going to do. So I'm kind of stealing his words here, but they'll, they'll put in these very interesting caveats. We want free speech, but it must be inclusive free speech. Mm -hmm. And we might be able to get into that, but essentially it means we don't want free speech. Yes, yes, and they, 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 they spend so much time delving into the exceptions and not enough time upholding the rule. And I, I'll let you respond to that, Bruce, but I wanted to add a, another dimension for you to weigh in on, too, which is going right back to the fundamentals. The universities we're talking about here, by and large, publicly funded, but the charter doesn't apply in the same way that it does in, in other public institutions, does it? Well, it's hard to get a straight answer on that from the courts. Some courts have said in some circumstances, in some respects, the charter will apply, but other courts in other provinces have said not so much. So it cannot be stated as a clear idea that the charter applies to universities. So you must assume that, that, that it maybe doesn't, especially in Ontario right now. That might change, but, but who knows? 
But on the on the policies question, um, as as David alludes to, you you won't find a university who says, "Oh, we we don't believe in academic freedom" or "We don't believe in free speech." None of them say that. That's not what they mean. What they mean is, yes, we believe in those things, but and it's the but that is the problem. And when we're talking about policies, let's, let's just be clear about something. Um, some of your listeners might think, well, the speech is not absolute in the country. Why should it be absolute on campus? But let's just acknowledge this. The laws of the land apply on campus as they do everywhere else. So if you're in the classroom, you're not at liberty to defame somebody or to counsel a crime any more than you would be on the sidewalk. The effect of university policies is to make speech more limited on campus than it is off campus, which is a very strange and ludicrous thing for an institution that exists for the purpose of pursuing truth. That means you're not as free to speak on campus as you are off. That makes no sense. Laurier has recently come out with a um, qualification to its free speech policy. And this is, I think was penned by the uh, VP of equity, diversity and inclusivity, but it's not signed. So we don't know where it came from. It's in two different places on the, on the uh, university website. So I think they, they regard it as very important. It's titled the intersection of freedom of expression and equity, diversity and inclusion. So that's an interesting intersection. And I think there's going to be an accident at that intersection. Um, and and they, they recognize, they ramble on, they recognize that free speech has been uh, historically turned against uh, those seeking justice. Uh, and, and they- Hold on just a sec. Which just, again, I want you to continue with that, but that's not even true. <laughs> you know what I mean? The fact that LGBT, uh, go back to women, the fact that any of these uh, so-called vulnerable groups ever got the rights that they have is because of free expression. So mm -hmm. again, this is the way that the, the left throws out these false equivalencies, this, this uh, asymmetrical ideology. It's simply not true. So carry on, Will, but uh, for those who uh, are listening, it's kind of the test. Whenever I hear anything put forward now by university administrators, I say, what are they hiding? Sorry, carry on, Will. Uh, just two more from this. There's so many gold nuggets in it. Um, one that disturbs me is they say there's a difference between personal opinions expressed on social media versus ideas expressed in the classroom. And they say because the, in the classroom, these ideas might not reflect the university's values of equity, diversity, and inclusion. So this gets right at what Bruce was just saying is uh, are free speech outside the university different from inside? Is that what they're telling us? Well, that I, I think is a, an important point because the the whole premise here, and I think Bruce touched on this well by talking about the laws of Canada applying in the university, because people will say, well, free speech isn't hate speech. And I would say no. And we already have in criminal law in Canada, a very narrow 
justifiably so definition of what hate speech is. The issue is that universities want to further narrow and further narrow the confines of what is not just socially acceptable speech, but legally acceptable speech. And if I can put out a more general or philosophical question here, it used to be that universities were the ones that were pushing the boundaries of speech outside what was socially acceptable. And now they're narrowing. And and this is, I, I think, the biggest contrast of, you know, the traditional and I would say positive view of universities and what's happening now is that they're not pushing the boundaries out. They're constraining those boundaries. Sorry, I just wanted to clarify something that Will was saying, because and we've spoken at great length about this. So when he says that you shouldn't say, uh, I'm sorry, when, when our administration in the, in the policy he was referencing says that what's said on social media shouldn't be said in the classroom. I think that I'll just clarify that you should always be talking in the classroom about what is relevant to the course, right? We, we don't advocate someone politicizing the classroom. I don't want to see people who are talking about 17th century poetry bringing in Black Lives Matter, although that happened at our university. I mean, I, I'm against when that happens. But my point would be, let's say you are commenting on something on social media. Uh, often I'll quote studies that, that go against the narrative that's being taught at my university. But, it, but sometimes it, those come into my class because it actually relates to the course content. So I just want to, to kind of put a finer point on what Will was saying. Bruce, you had a, a thought too. Well, the thought that I was going to express was this. It's very easy for universities to endorse academic freedom these days, partly because most of the people at the universities are singing the same song. So if you're a person at the university, a professor or a student, and you, you believe in the prevailing narrative, then you have the freedom to say what you think. And that's not the same thing as embracing the idea of, of ideological or viewpoint diversity. So yeah, there are outliers at the universities who will cause trouble by saying what they think in the name of academic freedom. And that's, that's where these conflicts arise, but they don't arise nearly as often as you'd think for the very reason that a particular constituency has essentially captured the university. And most people are, are reading the same book. If they really wanted diversity of thought, then they would need to go out today and hire a whole lot more conservative, classically liberal, libertarian professors, because there are very, very, very few of those on campus right now. That's the age-old uh, expression about free speech, that you don't need free speech for speech you agree with. You need it for speech you disagree with, which is exactly the, the type of speech that would find itself uh, subject to censorship in, in various forms. And that actually brings up a, a topic I wasn't planning on getting into, but I, I feel it is important, which is the makeup of academy, of the academy and of the various professors in it. And with all due respect to you, David, I, I think we expect a lot of this wokeness from the area of study that, that you've picked so it's good that you're there pushing back against it but but i've noticed that these attitudes are infiltrating areas where i think a lot of people thought they were kind of immune to it and i'll go to you on this one william you're in finance you'd think that something as simple as numbers would not be uh, subject to the scourge of wokeness and, and censorship but but that isn't actually the case well i'm uh I'm in a, a department that combines business and economics, and I'm probably the most right most member. There's over 125 faculty. 
um, feel quite lonely. And finance is, is kind of, uh, it's still pretty good, but it's going in this sustainable finance direction now that we hear from David Carney and Tiff Macklem. Um, so even it is getting polluted by these trends. And, and so uh, I got to be careful what I say, even around the business school. Even the sciences now are, are coming into this. I mean, you'd think that if you are in physics, you don't have to worry about any of this. And that's not true anymore. Well, I remember a couple of years ago, I, I always try to read uh, some of the, the journals uh, that are not e just to read the titles and the abstracts, not even to read the studies. And, you know, there was one about how hurricane names are sexist and uh, how one of them was, you know, toxic masculinity in the study of glaciology or something like that. And it is getting to the point where, where it's becoming inseparable reality and, and parody. But this is something that has very real world implications for people that are going into academia in earnest and people wanting to make a difference in their field of study. And, and you, David, I mean, you were in the middle of this conflict with Lindsay Shepard. And I know a lot of the professors like you and, and like Will have become vilified online just by virtue of, of standing up for free speech. And I know professors that have spoken out have been targeted by students in terms of uh, course feedback, uh, complaints to deans, and all of these things that have nothing to do with are they providing an education? Are they doing what they're supposed to do? So what is your read on, on where things are going with this? Can I just uh, set David up here? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll um, let David, David, can Will set you up? Absolutely. Okay, set up away. This, this policy document that I've been reading from closes uh, with the following sentence. If students have experienced racism, hate, or oppression in the classroom, there are avenues at Laurier to address concerns see below, and then there's a list of offices and links. Now, you know, no one wants racism or think it's, it's appropriate, but hate and oppression are extremely subjective, and oppression is the centerpiece of the entire social critical theory. Uh, so it really creates the grounds, it weaponizes students to complain uh, about what their instructors are teaching in the classroom, and this has been David's experience. Well, yeah, and just to add to the setup to David here, sorry, David, you're very patient. <laughs> you know the what, one you guys know, uh, I love the good story, so you just keep talking. <laughs> is, is that we, we've conflated genuine oppression with disagreement, where a student who's from an upper middle class family getting a university education in a wealthy country like Canada could claim to their university and have their claim heard uh, very legitimately that they are being oppressed because you've expressed a viewpoint that disagrees with theirs. So with that, I'll go to you on this, David. Right. Well, I'm glad that Will actually brought up that we have a, an official page on our university website that is essentially dedicated to Will and I, and it's how to get these guys fired. That's what the page is. Congratulations. And, and it says, yeah, 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 there's this thing called academic freedom. Yeah, 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 we have a policy on free speech. But if you really want to get these guys fired, then you've got to use a different tact. And that tact is going to be through discrimination and harassment, right? You've got to go the Ontario Human Rights Code route. That's what they're saying. They're saying, and, and look for this in the classroom. Now, I've got a very jaundiced view of this. You know, people might say, oh, Haskell, you're, you're reading into that. Uh, there are some other things that make me believe that this is intentional. The fact that our student newspaper wrote two editorials that said the same thing, how to get these professors fired. It begins to make you 
a little paranoid. It was Woody Allen who said, if you're paranoid, it's, it's a great strategy when people are out to get you. So back to this, in my own classroom, uh, just in the last semester, I had two complaints go to, to the official office uh, where these kind of human rights complaints go within our university. Uh, and both of them were unfounded. I want to get to the punchline. They were unfounded, right? They're, they were not allowed to proceed. But I was in that for weeks where I was being threatened with disciplinary action, uh, where I was being threatened that you've breached the Ontario Human Rights Code. And the interesting thing is, again, in the end, these were all lies, right? But the students have been told, see, I think that the students, they don't recognize what is the truth and what is a lie. They just assume they hear something that upsets them. Therefore, that must be harassment. That must be oppression. But thank goodness, there's actually still some semblance of uh, reality in, in our courts and in our, our legislation still, not, not for long probably, but still. So when these complaints from students are compared to what actually is the threshold for discrimination or harassment. It doesn't meet the mark, right? Actually, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm simply showing them studies or I'm, I'm doing my job diligently and they're saying that that is what the oppression is. But I had these complaints come against me and I can't help but think that they're reading these documents and they're saying this is what we need to do. They're being the good minions of, of the professors who are also uh, eager to see the exit of Will and I. Because these uh, discussions have moved into human rights code territory and, and all of these other things like uh, racism and oppression and sexism and homophobia, transphobia, all of these things, is tenure still the trump card defense that it historically was in academia? Or are professors really under the sword of Damocles with these developments? Well, tenure is still very important. Without tenure, you wouldn't have a shot. But it's also not ironclad because in a dispute about discipline or termination, it's really a dispute between the university administration and the faculty association. And so the faculty association has to take up your case. And if they're of the opinion that you've spoken badly and don't, don't mind if you are disciplined, then you've got no place to go because individual faculty don't have legal rights under their collective agreements. But all, all of this is a reflection, I think, uh, the, 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 the stories that uh, Dave and Will have been telling is a reflection of what has become the dominant intellectual premise of the university, and that is critical theory. And critical theory is not really a theory, and it's not really critical in the same sense that critical thinking is critical. It's, it's basically a set of premises. It's an agenda, a proposition. And the proposition is that Western society is oppressive, period. And if you dispute that, then you are in the wrong. You are wrong by definition. And therefore, you are racist, or you are oppressive, or you are, you are doing the exact thing that, that critical theory uh, describes it, 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 your speech is a demonstration of the truth of the theory and why then wouldn't you be disciplined because you've you, you've you've been shown to be wrong and people who are not familiar with this theory think it's crazy i mean it's it is crazy it's 
it's cuckoo. But this is the logic now of the way the university works. And one of critical theory's propositions, because it's a theory that attacks the, the foundations of the enlightenment, which is at the bottom of Western civilization, it's attacking the very notions of reason and evidence. So if you bring reason and evidence to your classroom, you are being oppressive. I mean, that's how crazy it is. And, and free speech itself is is this, you know, white Eurocentric patriarchal value. And when you have people that again are, are prepared to strip away all of these building blocks, you have you have nothing left. And, and critical theory, uh, not just limited to universities now, and this is where people on the right have historically, I think, missed the boat on this. This is now seeping into a lot of corporate training, certainly education in uh, lower years, secondary and primary schools. So I think that's something we should explore in a, a future show in, in more depth. Uh, you had a comment, Will. Uh, oh, gosh, what, what Bruce has just said is so important. I, I just have to repeat it almost. The uh, critical theory lies behind everything we're observing. All the university administrations have embraced it and, and that's what drives equity, diversity, and inclusion. It is the practical application of critical theory within the university. So it's antithetical to free speech. Disputation, uh, we don't need disputation because um, we assume oppression. You know, Ibram Kendi said, uh, you're either racist or anti-racist. There's no not racist. So, you know, you, you can't take a nuanced view of that. You can't, if you dispute it, you're the bad guy. Uh, so that's just so important. I, but the question I was going to ask him related back to um, this issue of the Ontario Human Rights Code. And what I'm seeing happen is, 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 is there's, there's a desire uh, to let or, or get students to complain about topics in a course on the grounds that they're discriminatory. So if I, if I were in the appropriate course and, and wanted to discuss whether trans women should compete in women's sports, uh, what I might foresee is a student complaining, saying the very topic is discriminatory. Perhaps the students uh, transgender themselves, and and they would go to the Office of Dispute Resolution and say, "Well, this this is violating the Ontario Human Rights Code." And this is my question for Bruce: Is you know, does the Ontario Human Rights Code cover universities? Because the protected social areas are housing, contracts, employment, goods and services and uh, membership in, in unions. It, it, it doesn't apply to universities as far as I understand. Well, no, it does. This, the Human Rights Code will apply to universities because education is a service. So universities are subject to the code. It's just that the code does not do what it at first seems to be doing. It, it, it seems first to, to provide the right to equal treatment um, for, for any reason, for all the enumerated reasons in the code. But it has exceptions, and those exceptions allow for special programs, and those special programs are permitted for purposes of, of ameliorating what they would consider to be historical disadvantage. And the way that all plays out, to make a long story short, is that it's permissible for universities probably, it hasn't really been tested to be, but, but at the moment it looks like universities may be able to essentially discriminate against everybody except for a very small group like straight white men. In other words, they may be allowed, for example, to post 
job opportunities that are targeted at particular racial groups or or women or particular ethnic backgrounds or exclude the other groups that are not historically disadvantaged. And that would appear to be exactly the opposite of what the Human Rights Code guarantees. And I, I, I would say that it, it is. One of the things that I, I find interesting about the last 15, 16 months as we've gone through the pandemic is it's, it's put a little bit of a freeze in some of the more public examples of this a campus attack on free speech because no events have been allowed. So the idea of pulling a fire alarm on a vent or having a speaker shut down hasn't been there. But you both, uh, William and David, have spoken about that this undercurrent is still very much alive and well. Students complaining about you and about your, not even about your teaching, but just about uh, your view of the world uh, as though that is somehow uh, oppressive to them. And it's interesting because I spoke, I think it was in 2018 at a, a Laurier Society for Open Inquiry event. And I was quite sad that I wasn't important enough to have the fire alarm pulled. That was actually the real uh, deflation of my ego that I, that I didn't get uh, deplatformed. Formed. I, I wasn't up there at some of the levels. But when school gets back to normal, or, or we hope uh, back to normal in the fall, a lot of these issues are, are I think, going to be coming back with a vengeance, especially with what we've seen in the last year and the George Floyd protest, the resurgence, uh, resurgence of Black Lives Matter. And it, it seems a lot more unquestioning acceptance of, of this doctrinal uh, wokeness. What's your prediction on how this is going to unfold? My prediction is that uh, rougher times are coming for people who are libertarian, conservative, and that, that means rougher time for students as well, not just faculty. So you, you may have touched on this in a previous show, Andrew, and I apologize if I'm plowing this field again, but uh, Eric Kaufman, just in March, uh, he's at the University of London, he came out with a study that looked at the number of conservatives in Canadian universities and also in the U.S. and the U.K., but I'll just talk about the Canadian data and uh, how they're treated. Well, it's about 6%. No, it is 6% of professors who would say that they're conservative or right-leaning. And the, the vast majority obviously aren't. But of the leftist professors, about a quarter, and I'm sorry, those, those under 40, I'll do it by age, those under 40 are willing to punish those who are conservatives, right? The next generation of liberal in quotes, liberal professors say that they are willing to punish someone for their conservative views. So what does it look like in the future? As these younger liberal professors move through the system, they're even more hostile toward conservative viewpoints and the people who hold those viewpoints. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be terrible, even more for the students, though. If you are a conservative student, on campus and you make your values known, you are a target. Now, if, if a professor, and we have really good data, uh, Inbar and Lammers did a study, if people wanna look it up, and they, they asked liberal professors, would you sink the grant application or would you stymie the job uh, opportunity for someone if you found out they were conservative? 25% said yes. Now, if they're willing to do that to an equal, what do you think they're willing to do to a student, a subordinate? So it's open season. 
but particularly for conservative students who are willing to stand up for their principles. So what does the future look like? Dismal. William, what are your predictions? <laughs> uh, let's see if I can get more negative than uh, David. Um, you know, Laurier still has a security fee policy and is uh, committed to it. Um, uh, so over the last couple of years, only the administration uh, invites uh, visiting speakers. Uh, our, our new uh, vice president of equity, diversity and inclusion had two events in the fall that were uh, about uh, equity, diversity and inclusion and invited social justice academics and administrators in EDI. Um, and, and one of the more pernicious trends uh, that I'm seeing is the universities taking positions on contentious social issues, which has a very chilling impact on free speech. So in particular, Laurier's taken uh, positions uh, uh, in favor of climate strike, scholar strike. Um, they, last summer, they fully embraced systemic racism, which means that they embrace critical race theory. Um, they, they've embraced indigenization, indigenous ways of knowing, which is a very contentious uh, issue to say the least. And, and each time they do this, they, they take that topic and sort of move it out of bounds, that you, you can't dissent to the, the university's position or you'll be pilloried. And you can't even really discuss it in a more nuanced way, you'll be pilloried. And, and uh, David and I have the scars to show. Uh, we've had a, um, a, a, an online mob come after us on social media. We've had we, the, have, we have our own fan club. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the good kind. <laughs> so I, I'm very pessimistic. And uh, Bruce, I'll give you the last word on this. What are your predictions? Predictions. Well, predictions are hard to make. Uh, I mean, I, I have to agree with uh, Will and Dave about the idea that this is going to get worse. I don't see any real, real progress being made. There's there's too much resistance. I think you can see that in the in the contradictions inherent in the way the universities now function. So on the one hand, if if you are to make the proposition to them, for example, that universities should not be political, that they're supposed to be in neutral institutions that have professors who themselves investigate questions, and they might be political themselves about those questions, which is fine. But the institutions themselves shouldn't be taking positions on things. And that advice has completely been rejected. As, as Will says, they are adopting political stances on these various political questions. And then you say, okay, all right, so you're in now the, the realm of politics. Here's a proposition for you. Within the university, you should have a diversity of political opinions. So as to, to enhance this search for truth that you claim to be about. And the response to that is, oh, no, we don't want to be political. We don't want to get into ideology. And so putting those two things together, the bottom line is very simple. They are of a particular view and they will not, they do not want to put up with opposition to that view. Those views are political and the contrary political view is really not considered to be legitimate. So we just kept getting more and more negative as these closing remarks ended up, which wasn't the intention. But let me just put this out before I wrap things up. Do any of you see any source for optimism here? Do you think this is just going to get worse before it might hopefully get better? The, 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 one of the 
I mean, this isn't happening right now, I don't think, but I suppose it's possible that 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 people who are thinking about going to university might start to wonder if it's worth it. Hmm. If it becomes apparent that certainly in some fields, all they're getting is a kind of, of indoctrination instead of education, then they might rightly wonder if it's worth the time and expense. I don't know if that will happen, but it's a possibility. Well, that's a, a bit of an action item for uh, people. If you're listening and, and thinking of going to university or perhaps you're a parent of someone who is, I mean, these sorts of changes do take time, but ultimately universities are businesses. And if, if they're seeing their enrollment go down, uh, perhaps in the absence of a, a more imminent or immediate solution, we could see some hope on the horizon there. So uh, thanks for that recommendation, Bruce, and giving us perhaps a, a glimmer of hope as we head into the weekend and as the uh, school season is getting ready to gear up in just a couple of months' time. My thanks to Bruce Party, Queen's University law professor, Laurier finance professor, William McNally, and David Haskell, also from Laurier, sociology of religion and digital media and journalism. A great discussion, gentlemen, and thank you so much for your work and your active rebellion just by virtue of thinking something different uh, than your colleagues do. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Well, like I said, I wasn't expecting it to be as negative, but I think the one little twist I'd say to make that a more uh, constructive close is that you need to be able to diagnose the problem if you want to do anything about it. And I think a lot of people who are far removed from universities, people who think, well, that doesn't, it's just those eggheads in their ivory towers, it doesn't affect me. Everything else in society is downstream of this, from domestic and foreign policy, politicians, governments, law schools, med schools, all of this is downstream of this. And if, as William and Bruce were talking about with critical theory, if the foundations are being stripped away at this core undergraduate level in academia, it means that everything else, everything else is subject to this permeation of what I think I, I called on the fly doctrinal wokeness or wokeism. Right? Yeah, I'll have to look back at the uh, footage and, and see what I said, but I, but I liked it when it popped into my head. In any case, my thanks to William and David and Bruce for coming on. Such a, a great discussion, even if it is a bit of a difficult one. Hope you all have a great weekend. We'll be back in just a few days' time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.